0: Hey, everyone. This is Colleen Wachub, and I'm the co-founder and co-CEO of Mind, Body, Green. I'll be your host for today's podcast. Today, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Jolene Brighton to the Mind, Body, Green podcast. She's a naturopathic medical doctor, leading expert in post-birth control syndrome, the author of the new book, Beyond the Pill, and an MBG collective member. After experiencing post-birth control syndrome herself, she found more and more patients calling her saying, you're the doctor who believes women's birth control stories. While she's not against using the pill for needs such as pain with endometriosis or heavy periods, we discuss the negative impact the pill can have on women's fertility, even with IVF, among others. She also shares which tests she recommends to patients wanting to be proactive about their reproductive health and those looking to get pregnant right away. Dr. Jolene Brighton, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey there, I'm so excited to be here, and the first time that I've actually seen Mind Body Green behind the scenes. Amazing, <laughs> Yeah, amazing. Well, we're thrilled to
0: have you here today and to talk a little bit about your new book, Beyond the Pill, can you share with our audience a little bit about your background and the genesis of this super comprehensive book?
1: Well, the funny thing is, is that when I got into, I started my private practice. I actually said to my husband, "I'm done with birth control. I don't want to talk about birth control anymore with patients." And then he reminded me this a few months ago. He's like, "You remember that time you said that?" And here he wrote a whole book. <laughs> um, so really, I have my patients to thank for that. They've always been my greatest teachers. Um, so my journey is, you know, I did ten years on the pill. I'm not anti-birth control because it was absolutely a tool I used to be a first-generation college student. I'm a doctor. Thank you, birth control. (laughs) So it's a great tool and a great thing we have access to. But there was a whole lot I struggled with and didn't realize it was because of the pill the whole time I was on it. And it wasn't until my first year in naturopathic medical school that I learned I'm only fertile one day out of the month and how the birth control pill really worked. And so at that point, I decided to come off I developed what I now understand to be post-birth control syndrome, lost my period, cystic acne for the first time in my life, and my doctor did a really good job at letting me know I was the only person ever to experience this in the history of other. And yeah, I know. I totally believed it too until, you know, I got into clinical practice. And I was like, wait, the majority of women, if not all, struggle in some way to come off of birth control. But, you know, what, what made me not want to talk about birth control anymore was that I spent 2 years in clinical rotations at a homeless youth clinic which is a high risk population for sexual assault and so and you know there's there's menstrual inequality as we all are coming to understand these women also can't afford sanitary you know pads or tampons or any of these things that some of us take for granted quite frankly right. and so for them getting a depo shot was something that they could shut down their cycle, not have to worry about their period and not worry about pregnancy if something did happen. And so I spent a lot of time counseling these women. And something I noticed is that I'd be in this clinic, state-funded, we'd go over, we'd say depo, no more than two years, otherwise you have bone loss, and we'd be going over all these side effects to look out for, and then in a general medical doctor's practice, I was doing rotations there, and it the story went, hey, you're going to college, here's your pill, have a great time, study hard, and really no discussion around that. So that was my first observation of like, huh, we're not getting the whole story here, but two years of talking about birth control all day, every day, I was like, I'm done (laughs) until my patients started calling up. And, you know, these patients would call and say, I want to schedule with you. I heard you're the doctor that believes women's birth control stories, which was so odd at first until I got into the room and I had discussions with them and came to understand that their symptoms were often dismissed if they had side effects. And that when they came off, their doctor was like, nope, this is your new normal and it wasn't normal it wasn't like anything they'd ever experienced and in a lot of ways it helped heal myself as well in terms of the validation like i had healed the physical body but in sure. terms of the emotional validation to be like i'm not alone it wasn't in my head i'm not a freak and like as i say these words there's going to be women nodding their head because so many of us have made, been made to feel that way at different times in our life by different people and certainly in the medical world it's no exception So when
0: a woman is on the pill, she's obviously not having a normal menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. And what insights
1: can a woman get about her own health from her period? Oh, man, that has so much data. (laughs) So much data. (laughs) Um, And my background is, you know, a nutritional biochemist and doing research. I'm all about the data. And with, uh, you know, your menstrual cycle, so the entire cycle, if you are tracking how you feel every day, what your symptoms are, it can provide a lot of clues about your hormones and hormones hormone imbalance. So for instance, if leading up to ovulation is where you and when you're breaking out, that may be because of excess testosterone or because of an enzyme called five alpha reductase taking your testosterone and putting it into DHT, which is a potent androgen that makes us break out, lose hair on our head, get it on our chin and chest. Nobody likes any of that. No. So, I mean, that's just one data piece. And when it comes to your period, you know, um, ACOG actually in 2015, this is a conventional journal um, that said, this is the fifth vital sign. It's up there with blood pressure and temperature wow. and respirations, like all the ways we know how healthy you are and are you going to die. So like, you're missing is... these huge valuable insights. Absolutely. And in addition to that, you know, when you're you're shutting all of that down, it's important to understand that you can be masking some things that are taking place in your body because your menstrual cycle and your period is one way of communicating with you. And truly, you live in your body. You're going to catch when something is off, when something's not normal for you before labs even show show it right um so what are the
0: you know fundamentals of health you say the fifth vital sign is the menstrual cycle what are what are the other things that women need to be paying attention to that maybe they're not
1: Mm. so like your emotions are really important (laughs) your energy so your mood is important your energy understand you are a cyclical creature you won't have energy like your energy and your libido are the two that we often get told, like, they should be static. Like, they should be up all the time. But we're not men. Like, we're cyclical. And so our libido is going to go up when it's, when we're going to ovulate. Because, I mean, what's the libido for? It's like, let's get you in the mood so we can make a baby. And then, you know, your energy is going to come down as you get closer to menstruation. And that makes sense. Like, women will say, oh, I'm fatigued and you know that's a problem because you know i have to do work and all these things and the thing i have to frame to them is you spent an entire month building your endometrial tissue that's an organ in your body like the lining right. of your uterus you're about to shed that like that's right. going to take some work so you're going to slow down you're going to want you're going to want to rest a little bit more and it's okay to give pa- the permission to pause with that so other things is like your sleep your sleep is linked to your hormones your menstrual cycle as well so paying attention attention to that your stress not just like what is your stress in your life and how does it affect your menstrual cycle but vice versa and you know when where are you at in your menstrual cycle do you find that you're at the mercy of stress or do you feel really really resilient in that and also just looking at things of like how do you perform how do you you know at work or you know at whatever you're doing really um how are you how articulate are you at times pay attention to how your skin looks does your skin flare I mean your digestion I could keep going like every single Organ system is affected by your hormones, which is why, you know, with birth control, we have to understand although it was designed to only affect the reproductive system, it impacts every single system in your body, just like your natural hormones would. So, you also talk a little bit about liver health in your book, which I don't think is
0: something that's super part of the woman's health dialogue why is woman why is liver health so important to overall fertility in women's health oh i talk a lot about liver
1: there's a whole <laughs> chapter and i wanted to just call us like let's just call it the liver chapter yeah and my wonderful publishers who look out for the readers are like that is boring that is not sexy so it's the birth control hormone detox 101 um and i like to explain your liver will detox birth control and your gut will move it out so but the focus here is not birth control is depleting nutrients that really impact liver detox and so you can't detox as effectively plus our environment is full of everything like hating on our hormones these days but your liver is where you actually process your estrogen and package it up to move it out of your body and it's a very important site because it's not just about trying to get it out of your body but making the right metabolites as well and so Within the liver, you can make three different metabolites and you want to be making the 2-hydroxyestrone, or 2-OHE1, but you may be making more like 16-hydroxy. That's associated with growths like fibroids, cysts, uh, endometrial hyperplasia. So that's when we get clotty, heavy periods, Mm -hmm. breast swelling and tenderness before your period. And there's been studies to show that women uh, actually have a history of an elevated 16-OH. When they have that history, they're at higher risk of breast cancer. So these are, your liver is like so vital and so important, but it's also at the crux of blood uh, blood sugar regulation, but it can be blood sugar dysregulation. And so with women's hormonal health, and especially as it relates to fertility, if your adrenal glands and your liver are not happy, we're going to get blood sugar dysregulation, and you're going to get a stress response going on that will actually tell your body the environment's not safe. You will push into cortisol. do need
0: more cortisol.
1: No. Yeah. <laughs> just, it's like, every hormone is like Goldilocks. Like, it's just like, just the right amount. Right. Not too hot, not too cold. Right. Um, th- with that, you know, that will push you away from progesterone. Your body will choose survival over reproduction any day because, you know, on the evolutionary Uh, continuum the body has not evolved yet to understand our modern environment like if you Mm. just think about cell phones alone like um i'm gonna date myself here but we didn't walk around with computers in our hands like most people didn't have a laptop back then but so when you are scrolling through your feed um And whatever social media feed it is, and you compare and despair, and you get stressed out, and you run these thoughts, your body has no idea if it's because of Facebook or, you know, Instagram, or is it a lion or tiger or bear? Oh, my. Right. (laughs) Right. So are more or less women taking the pill these days? So it's very interesting. What we are seeing is the millennial generation is rejecting hormonal birth control at the highest rate. And that's, you know, my dedication in my book is to every little girl who was told she talked too much and asked too many questions. (laughs) That's been me. And if that's you too, then put your hands up and I praise (laughs) you. Um, But it was also to every woman who went before us so they could show us there was a better way. And this is something I think millennials have really been observing is that they've seen the side effects they've seen what their mom's gone through what their grandmother possibly has gone through what aunts and to see these side effects to see you know what's taking place but they are also a generation that's very invested in knowing their body and i like to say they're writing a new story in women's medicine where The old story was that our body's betraying us. You know, symptoms are your body's way of wrecking your life. And in reality, you know, symptoms are your body's way of communicating to you. There's some of the best information you can have, especially if you're a clinician, to be able to help a woman, but for a woman to understand her body further. So while there are 100 million women using oral contraceptives currently in the world, which is astounding to me, we are seeing a decline in the number of the new generation actually. That are coming of age and being offered birth control, most of them are getting into this root cause medicine and saying, "No, no, no, I actually want to know what's going on." As, as you would have read in my book, almost sixty percent of women are prescribed birth control for mainly symptom management, not necessarily for uh, preventing pregnancy, which is a big flip from right. what it, you know how it all started. And what are the risks of? hormonal birth control. Mm, There's so many. How much time do we have? (laughs) That's that's why there's a whole book. And, you know, that's really why I wrote the book. And I I came from the perspective of like, okay, when I got my period of 14, what would I have wanted people to tell me? What would I have wanted to know so I could understand and work with my body? And then when I got on the pill at 17, what do I wish my doctor would have said to me before I got on there? And then what is, what are all the gaps in everything my patients never knew and was kind of a shocker? So You know, the stroke, heart attack, and cancer risk, I think those are the things that get talked about the most. I have a whole chapter on that. And I really set out... I actually
0: think we can talk about those more. I mean, I had a pulmonary embolism on the pill in 2012, Mm -hmm. so like seven years ago. And I think people make out the risk to be, like, 1 in 15,000. And since I shared my story, I've had hundreds of women talk to me, and I just think the data must be vastly underreported.
1: Yes, there's there's that, and, uh, you know, there's also the issue that, like, we're not screening women before we put them on them. So well, that's also super interesting in your book because, of course, when you're 32 and you have a pulmonary
0: embolism, you get tested for – everything under the sun. And mm-hmm. I came back with no genetic risk factors. I don't have any of the factor fives. But you talk about something, um, the gene mutation C677T, mm-hmm. in your book. And um, we talk a lot about the MTHFR gene, you know, and a lot of the content that runs on Green. But no doctor that I had talked to had actually linked those two.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Which reading your book was the first time I had learned that there was a link
1: between C six seven seven T and clotting. So I'd love to learn more about that. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's very interesting because there is a lot of information in PubMed when you start digging and to realize that most of it isn't making it into medical education or into continuing medical education, right. which is after doctors graduate. And so the MTHFR mutation, you know, we know that people with MTHFR they're at higher risk for cardiovascular, events. and that's like forty percent of the country, yeah. right? And that's <laughs> this why, is not a rare mutation. No, <laughs> and that's why I put that in the book. You know, Factor Five Leiden is more of a rare sure. mutation, but you know, I've had patients who come in, they're on hormonal birth control they're wondering, like, do I need to get off of it? Or I'm looking at getting off of it. When do I need to come off of it? We run these tests. And if I find these genes, and then we start looking at um, other markers, like MPO, LPPLA2, which are telling me about um, immune activation, inflammation in the cardiovascular system. If we start seeing that, like, okay, well, one, if you've got the gene mutations, I'm like, you've got to get off of this. because (laughs) It's it's like Russian roulette. And, you know, it is something where – What I will say is that they always report that like stroke, heart attack, and breast cancer risk, you know, statistically speaking, they're low, they're rare. But (laughs) the thing I always like to frame it as is like, but we're talking about death-inducing conditions. We're not talking about acne. We're not talking about like, oh, you might get acne. We're talking about like, you might get a clot. And as I talk about in the book, you know, most women don't even know what it looks like to have a heart attack. Totally. And a lot of doctors don't even know what it looks like for a woman to have a heart attack, which is frightening. I mean, and these we, aren't things that 25 and 30-year-old women think about. No. And it's also something where, like, you know, doctors don't think about that. I've had 20-year-olds in my practice. i had a 19-year-old who's had a clot. Like, this happens. I mean, there are women uh, on my social media who will say, like, I had a stroke or I started the pill. I got I started having migraines. I started having migraines with aura. I pushed and pushed on my doctor. They finally did lab testing and they looked at they looked at it inf- inflammation and like just a CRP alone and they were like, You're inflamed, you're having migraines with aura, like, let's get you off of birth control. But a lot of women had to advocate for themselves. And even some women, you know, they have had strokes and they're dismissed at the ER. And they're told, like, oh, you're having a migraine. Oh, it's just a headache. Until, like, their whole face, you know, side of their face becomes paralyzed and is drooping. And it's, like, it doesn't take much to work that up and to – and that's really what it comes down to, right, is we have to believe women's stories. Patients shouldn't call me up saying, I heard you believe women's stories. Like, that should just be a given as a physician. So is there – any circumstances
0: in which you would recommend the pill to a patient, because I try to put away my own personal biases (laughs) around the pill, but I, understand that many doctors prescribe them and it can be the one thing that can help a woman for instance with endometriosis Mm -hmm. so are there any situations in which
1: you would advise a woman to take the pill so i think the pill can be used as a tool so when when you pass the pill for symptom management without telling a woman this is for symptom management this is not root cause medicine and not investigating like that's the disservice but you know in a case of endometriosis like this is something people always get shocked. I think a lot of people want to believe I'm anti birth control. <laughs> then like fits a better narrative of like the world is black and white. Sure. But like with endometriosis, that's something where in particular, if a woman is in pain 10, 14 days out of the month, how can you expect her to go to the grocery store, cook meals, like uh, exercise, do all these things that we know can help with inflammatory and uh, you know possibly an autoimmune condition she can't do that and so sometimes you need to use the pill to get symptom relief Mm -hmm. and to manage that same thing if you have really heavy periods like if you're somebody who's changing a tampon pad every hour you're bleeding like eight to ten days out of the month maybe the thing we need to do to shut that down so that we can rebuild your iron stores and start working on everything else and that's why you know in my book I try not to make anything fearful because I think too much of our decisions in women's medicine are based out of fear. So I want women to have the information and to also be supported and know if they start the pill, I've got you. Like, I will support you in that. And there's ways to take care of your body. You know, the other thing, too, this, you know, some people are like, oh, that's so trivial. But I I personally don't think it's trivial is women will say – I have acne, I'm getting married in a few months. I just want my acne to go away so I can have good photos. And I'm like, I hear that. Like that's, you know, it's something where, yeah, I can hear where people are like, it's just acne. It's just like photos, but it's like, it's your wedding day. Like you should feel confident, happy, have the photos you want. And so sometimes women will use it for that. Like it's absolutely something we can use as a tool. It's 100% percent your right to use it for birth control or for symptom management. But if it is for symptom management, we have to talk about, okay, well, what's the underlying cause of that as well. If you're getting on it for your wedding, understand your acne is probably going to come back with a vengeance. And it's a finite period of time. Yeah, absolutely. You're not getting married every year. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And what do we know about the pill's impact on future fertility? Mm, Yeah, so this is an area where we need a lot more research because – You know, it's very interesting to me. We've all, I think every one of us have heard from our doctor, like, oh, just take it. You won't have any problems. Mm -hmm. Except that, like, when you get into the studies, it can delay, you know, women's ability to conceive up by 18 months when you get off of it. And so there's that piece that's concerning because what if you're, like, 37 and you're thinking, I want to have a baby in, like, the next year and I'll just wait and get off of it? it could take you a good 18 months and then we run into problems of like advanced uh, age and for and how that affects our eggs and our fertility overall. The other thing that's interesting is reproductive endocrinologists, who these are the guys doing IVF, they're the ones who've been really observing you can get you can fertilize the egg but it might not implant because the endometrial tissue isn't isn't thick enough and so because the pill wears down the endometrial tissue? Well, because it downregulates the receptors, which may uh, be the very mechanism on how it protects endo- from an endometrial cancer. But, you know, this is something that needs to be investigated. It's like, why in some women do these receptors just not come back? And so even if she has estrogen and progesterone, and she's, and even if she's ovulating, she might, be, might not be able to, to stimulate the endometrial tissue for implantation. Now, there's the other concern as well with like, you know, birth control messes with your microbiome, which mama's microbiome becomes baby's microbiome. It depletes your nutrients. That's why I say like you need to give yourself at least six months. What was interesting is that I turned in this manuscript. Um, I wrote in there at least six months because from my clinical observation – prepping your body, getting pre-baby body ready, as I call it, for at least six months. These women, they had better outcomes with their pregnancies, easier postpartum, babies seem to be healthier, less complications. Then um, when, for people who don't know how writing a book goes, because I didn't know, it's a boomerang. You pass it, it comes back. You pass it, it comes back. And on the last round, it came back. I'm like, I can't believe it's back. But I was like, wait a minute. There's a study that just came out that showed that if you got pregnant within six months of coming off a birth control, your baby was at a higher risk of developing a childhood cancer. So and actually afforded me the opportunity to insert that. My husband, he was like, how did you know that? Did you know that? I'm like, no, I didn't know that. Like, there's a study just came out. And, you know, for anyone listening, don't shame yourself or judge yourself. This study just came out in 2018. If you knew better, you would have done better. And I think it's, you know, I just say this because I'm a mom and, like, mom guilt is strong. <laughs> and and <laughs> we, sure. always, we always take that finger and just turn it right back on ourselves. And we're like, yeah. somehow, I. Yeah. You know, as I was sharing with you, my son, he came down with a condition recently. And my first place I went, I was like, this is all my fault. How is this my fault? And I was like, you can't even figure out how this is your fault, but you already decided it was your fault. (laughs) Do it every day. (laughs) Right.
0: Um, So let's talk a little bit about this post-birth control syndrome. Mm -hmm. So you've coined it as PBCS.
1: Yeah. So post-birth control syndrome is really a collection of signs and symptoms that go together when a woman comes off of hormonal birth control. And this can be you know taking off the patch getting the implant removed getting iud removed stopping the pill really any hormonal birth control can lead to this and so it can be the return of symptoms you had before so if you used it for symptom management those symptoms may come back with a vengeance plus some new added ones or it may be brand new symptoms so like me and many of my patients uh, that i've seen can lose our periods like i yeah. had clockwork periods that i counted down like doomsday um and was so grateful the pill made them all go away so that they weren't painful anymore But when I came off, they were just gone. And so this is called post-pill amenorrhea. There's also a term. It took me
0: a year to get my period back.
1: Yeah. And yet doctors are like, no. Three months. Yeah, three months. That's it. (laughs) If you had irregular periods, then maybe six months. And I'm like, you know, if you are coming to three months, we just need to start investigating. Because sooner than later is always better. And it could be your thyroid. You don't want to wait around that might be the first sign you're mm-hmm. hypothyroid. So with that, you know, we on average we see these symptoms come on about 4 to 6 months after stopping birth control. For some women it's sooner, for other women, like most women, they plow through their symptoms. They're like I can handle it, I can handle it until they can't handle it, which makes it tricky to get a diagnosis or to get a doctor to listen because Two things. One, your doctor thinks that hormonal birth control is reproductive based only. So if it's not a lady part problem, it's probably not due to birth right. control. And the other part is that if it shows up a year later, doctors often say, "Well, if it was because of birth control, it would have showed up, shown up like you know within a few weeks." And it's like, "Well, most women are taking a placebo bleed when they're on the pills, so like why would you expect to see something like in that week?" And so. You know, the other piece of this, um, and I talk about it in my book, is post-pill PCOS. And Dr. Lara Brighton, not Brighton, Brighton, um, <laughs> she actually coined that term, which is where it looks like PCOS, but it's not PCOS. And so that's where we get the androgen rebound, is what I call it, where the ovaries just get so excited they're not suppressed anymore, and they just fire off all of that, <laughs> that testosterone. And so that's where we can get acne, we can lose our period or have irregular periods, and it can look a lot like PCOS except PCOS has this inflammatory metabolic uh, root cause to it. And so when you look at these women, sometimes there's mild blood sugar dysregulation, but for the most part, it's nothing like what you see in PCOS and they'll tell you that their periods were regular before they got on birth control. If your period was regular and you could could count on it coming around the same time every month and then you started birth control and when you come off it's irregular, that's not PCOS. That's something different going on. And that warrants further investigation, not just a go back on the pill and take metformin while you're at it.
0: And how is that related or not to the hypothalamus?
1: Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting is that the entire time that you're on hormonal birth control, it's shutting down how your brain is talking to your ovaries. So, you know, when you take the pill, understand it's a high enough dose to pass through your liver. So your liver actually is going to detox it a bit, but it's still high enough to feed back to the hypothalamic pituitary access and say, we've got more than enough hormones, do not signal the ovaries anymore. And so this is where we need to start investigating as well, is that, and this is something i I look at when women come off the pill if they do not have a period return i start looking at fsh and lh as well so that's follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. So if they don't have a period, I can look at those brain hormones and try to see, like, well, is your brain even signaling? Sometimes they're really low. The brain's not even talking to the ovaries, and the ovaries are not producing estrogen in the way that they should be. And if there's no ovulation, we don't see progesterone. And sometimes FSH is through the roof. And that's when I say the brain is screaming at the ovaries. So the right. brain is not the problem. The brain is screaming at the ovaries. The ovaries are the ones not listening now.
0: Interesting. Interesting. So what tests would you recommend a woman who wants to
1: take a proactive interest in her health uh, get in her 20s? Mm, I think getting a Dutch panel. That's one of my favorites. Or some kind of test that's going to look at not just estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. And what's a Dutch panel? Yeah, I'm going to go through all okay, of that. Cool. So <clears throat> the Dutch is a, is a dried urine panel. It's, it's one of the best uh, hormone tests on the market right now. Um, for a long time, we were using saliva. And sometimes we'll use saliva and blood at the same time. What's nice about Dutch is that you can see your DHT. So, are you taking testosterone and activating it into DHT? You can also see your metabolites. So, and there's other tests out there, like companies like Genova also does um, estrogen metabolites. This is a very important thing to know. Is like those metabolites. So, if you guys missed that, go rewind, listen to that at the beginning. But what is your liver doing with your estrogen? Are you methylating your estrogen? That tells us how your body's actually processing it to be able to get it it out of your body. But also sometimes you can have low estrogen, but you can have estrogen dominant symptoms because you're making too much of the wrong metabolite. And then that's overstimulating tissue. So looking at that piece, the Dutch panel, it's also comprehensive in giving you a cortisol versus cortisone. So Cortisol is active, anti-inflammatory, uh, also pro-belly fat, if you've got too much of it. And cortisone is inactive. And so, you know, we used to run, um, you know, salivary cortisol. And I still, I still think those work. But sometimes it would show that cortisol is just completely low. And so you think, I need to help this person get their cortisol up. But if you see their cortisone is through the roof, their right. body is deactivating it. That tells you you have to dig deeper and figure out what else is going on. And that panel also tells you about melatonin. Now, melatonin we all know is the sleep hormone, but it's very protective of our breast tissue, it's very protective of our ovaries. And why I say get this stuff done in your 20s is because you know the th- symptoms that we have in our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, they started when we were teenagers. Right. They started way back then. So taking a look at that, I think every single woman should be getting a full thyroid panel as just part of a yearly exam and at least having your baseline testing. And how can we use our thyroid data as a proxy to understand our overall health? Oh, yeah. So, okay, full thyroid panel. We should break that down. (laughs) Writing it (coughs) down, taking it (laughs) down. TSH is what your brain sends to your thyroid, so that's uh, thyroid-stimulating hormone. Your thyroid responds by secreting T4 primarily, which is inactive, and a little bit of T3, which is active. Now, that T4 needs to be converted. So this is important to understand because a lot of docs will only look at TSH. Right. That's a brain hormone. It's indirect measurement of thyroid the thyroid gland function. T4 is inactive. So we actually want to see what your active thyroid hormone is mm-hmm. and that conversion into T3. So we want to look at total and free hormones if women are on birth control especially because birth control can actually bind up your free hormones and then your total will be higher. And so your free, might, your free hormones might look like your hypothyroid and very well you will be hypothyroid with those symptoms because you're not actually able to get active thyroid hormone onto your receptor but your total thyroid hormone might be fine and that tells us okay it's not an issue with the function of your thyroid it's an issue with binding proteins grabbing onto that so those are the total and the free hormones and then we want to look at a reverse t3 whenever possible. Um, you know, I at least, you know, once if I'm screening you in my office, because if a reverse T3 is high, I call that the hibernation hormone. So we can take that T4 into free T3 or into reverse T3. And reverse T3 is basically putting the brakes on you. It's like, I need you to slow down. I need you to gain weight, be very cranky. So you like a bear in winter, don't yeah. don't wake you up. <laughs> um, and that's usually due to an infection or inflammation. And so the answer there isn't to give thyroid hormones, actually to go deeper and figure out what's going on Make sure we're supporting adrenal glands. And then we need to look at antibodies. So, TPO and thyroglobulin antibodies, those should be part of a woman's yearly screening because those antibodies are going to show up before thyroid symptoms show up, before the labs start changing. And those are indicative of Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which about 97%, some estimates are as 99% in the United States, that's the cause of hypothyroidism. So, the number one cause is autoimmunity. And we are seeing it. It used to be something that we saw, oh, women are getting this in their 30s, their 40s. Nope, we are now seeing eight-year-olds being diagnosed with Hashimoto's. Wow,
0: I'm pretty sure I didn't have a thyroid test until I was thinking about becoming a mother, but mm-hmm. at what age would you recommend most women start that? Well, if
1: you are having you know irregular cycles, you are gaining weight for no reason, you have dry skin, your hair's falling out, you're constipated, you're cold all the time, you have any of these symptoms, you should get tested immediately. And for some women, This is like they start their period. So starting your period can be a triggering event for autoimmune disease. And so for some girls, they start their period, maybe their period's are regular. then they become irregular. They can't predict them. That's a good time to investigate the thyroid. But most docs will come in and say, I've got a pill for that. It's birth control. Because, you know, and understand, your doctor's not bad. They have been taught, this pill will fix your problem and I'm helping you. And that's what they want to do. They want to help you. We just need to get some change in women's medicine and start changing the dialogue because there's a lot of this research not making it into medical school education. And doctors, you know, They only know what they are, you know, getting exposed to in conferences. And so if nobody's talking about thyroid to them as it relates to birth control and periods, then they may not know this.
0: And what are the tests that you would recommend for a woman who's thinking I have a child maybe in the next six months?
1: Yeah, well, you definitely got to get your thyroid panel because <laughs> if your TSH is above two point five, you may have difficulty conceiving, but you're at higher risk of miscarriage as well. And so the same is true with those TPO antibodies. So um, and what's interesting is that you know, in the United States, it's like if your TSH is above two point five and you want to get pregnant, the doctor, the guidelines are like, okay, I get you on thyroid medication. Um, but if you don't, they're like, okay, send you on your way. It's so weird to me. <laughs> and in other countries, so like in India... The last time I saw a study come through there, if you have TPO antibodies, they start you on thyroid medication just presumptively, because once you get pregnant, you're going to have about, you know, a 50% increased demand on your thyroid. It's a stress test for your yes. thyroid. And, for you your know, entire body. Yeah, totally, right? <laughs> and then postpartum thyroiditis, you know, that's an autoimmune condition that arises just as a result of giving birth that affects 1 in 12 women in the world. Yeah, that's really high. Yeah, it's really high. I developed this, and um, most, you know, I went to several doctors, and they didn't know what was going on they're like you're a mom of course you're tired <laughs> right. of course you're gaining weight i'm like right. but wait like i'm in my third trimester clothes and i had a baby a year ago like what is happening um so definitely getting your thyroid panel cbc a complete blood count Get a screening check check what your uh blood cells look like do you have any signs of anemia um i'd also say get your homocysteine that will tell us so how important you, so important especially if you've been on birth control because birth yes. control depletes b12 and folate and magnesium and without those, your homocysteine can go high. As we understand the research, that's correlated with adverse you know, issues with babies. So, like autism um, can be, you know, related to an elevated homocysteine. And so, this is an easy check to tell you, hey, I need I need to check my absorption possibly, but I need to get more B12 folate going. Other things that we want to look at is a comp metabolic panel. So, we want to see, you know, how is your gallbladder functioning? How are your liver enzymes? How's your blood sugar now? Like we want to be looking at all these things now before you get pregnant because once you get pregnant, it's a bit of an uphill battle. You know, we don't want to see you ending up with gestational diabetes if we can prevent that. Like if your liver is already stressed, um, that's going to be a lot harder with conception. It's going to be a lot harder through pregnancy and then getting a CRP as well. What's a CRP? Yeah, that's a C-reactive protein, it's a marker of inflammation. So, uh, and this is, like, ladies, this is, like, I'm going to say this, but nobody be like, you know, anything's your fault. But, like, there has been research um, that's shown, and this is very preliminary, that the fertilized egg actually scans the environment in the uterus. So, of course, it wants a nice, cushy endometrial tissue to embed in. in, But it's also looking for nutrients. So, it's looking, like, is is this a safe time to actually gestate? Um, So, it's looking for nutrients, and inflammation tends to impact that as well. And so getting your inflammation down, loading your nutrient stores. Like we are entering into pregnancy more nutrient depleted than we've ever seen before. And I think part of that is because we spend so much time on the pill trying not to get pregnant. And um, I kind of laugh because so many of my patients are like, if I knew how hard it was to get pregnant, I would have (laughs) not done hormonal birth control. But we, you know, I'm hoping things are changing. I need to look into like where sex at is at, but my sex ed was an epic fail, and they were just like, "If someone touches you, you'll get pregnant. Like, don't <laughs> hold hands." And you're like, "And that's what I'm talking about with the fear-based you know issues in, in women's medicine." So the other thing is definitely uh, if you're wanting to get pregnant in the next six months, start tracking your own data, like where's your libido at, cervical mucus, do basal body temperature, and then get some labs drawn. Check out your hormones. How are your hormones looking? Um, make sure if you have a healthy menstrual cycle and your hormones are bound, it's going to be a lot easier going into pregnancy and then a lot easier as you transition into postpartum. And and there's always so much time spent focusing on pregnancy. My first book's on postpartum health because Mm -hmm. once I had a baby, I was like, why isn't anybody talking about this this is like this lasts way longer and the demands it's like okay i'm pregnant it's a lot more than 40 days yeah and then you yeah <laughs> and then you have a baby and then you're like i'm not sleeping i joke that my son came out just like speed bag style on my adrenal glands like you're not sleeping they're crying he had like um allergies and it was like i did everything right and he's not oh it's just you know a good time being a new mom um Yeah. So that's some of the labs that I'd say, you know, to get started with. I certainly think there's more individualized labs that you can start looking at. And hands down, every person in the country, every person listening, you should have a vitamin D. Like you should definitely have a vitamin D checked because most of us are insufficient. And that can come down to issues with um, you're not getting out in nature enough and you're not getting enough sun exposure. But, you know, with your vitamin D, that's important for your bone health. It's important. It's important for like every Everything. we're going to learn more and more about vitamin D and be like, oh my gosh. It's important we we for your
0: mental me. health.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, if you are somebody, you know, if you really want to go the extra mile, Get your gut checked. Make sure your microbiome is on point. Um, and you can even do organic acid testing and making sure that your mitochondria is healthy. And these things are like, so I, I don't like people to be like, oh my God, I have to do all these things. This fire hydrant just opened and hit me. Um, that's like the next level. Um, just to make sure you have a healthy microbiome. You don't have any critters there. Like if you have yeast overgrowth in your gut, odds are you're probably going to end up with yeast overgrowth in your vagina. And then baby could possibly be born with thrush, which if you correct that ahead of time, you're going to be in a much better space and your microbiome is baby's microbiome when they're born and that's not just what's in your gut that it's what's on your skin it's what's in your vagina and that's all important because that sets up baby's immune health for life so besides vitamin d are there any staples of supplements that you think every woman should take Well, if you're wanting to get pregnant, you'd best be on a prenatal. (laughs) And and you want to do that like six months in advance. I do think a prenatal or multivitamin is really great for all women. I mean, these days our food supply is pretty depleted. And so you know, and especially if you're on birth control, you can't, you need to have your diet dialed in. Like diet and lifestyle are foundational. They're non-negotiable. Supplements don't work. Like if you're driving through the fast food window, like I did at 17, mm-hmm. uh, don't think you can pop a multivitamin and that's just going to be like, oh, that's fine. I got a multivitamin in. So <laughs> I'll take a green juice on yeah. top of that McDonald's. <laughs> totally. So uh, not judging, just saying like yeah. you should know this. So um, with that, I think a multivitamin, vitamin D, I think, you know, getting yourself EPAs in whether you're doing algae-based fish oil from sustainable well-screened fish oil or krill oil having those omega-3 fatty acids so important for the female brain the nervous system and especially if we want to have a baby that's another really important thing and then depending on what you find in your labs or what your symptoms are you know beyond the pill I take you through it's really a choose your own adventure book you can tell I grew up in the 80s (laughs) um, where you take a quiz and you can understand okay here is my hormone imbalance. So yes, this book is more than just birth control. It's actually, it's beyond the pill because it's to give you root cause solutions for your hormone imbalance beyond birth control. I know you can always get birth control as a solution. I want to give you more. And so you take the quiz and then you jump right in and I waste no time. I'm like, okay, if this is your problem, go to these pages. Because if your hormones are imbalanced, you don't want to read 300 pages. And you can go see like, For estrogen dominance, what's the best diet, lifestyle, and supplements that you can consider so you can really individualize it for yourself. And then we take you through a 30-day protocol where you're really testing what's true for you. And when you come out of that, you'll be able to understand and fine-tune and refine like what works for my body. Because... There, you know, there's a lot of people saying a lot of true things out there, and then we don't know what to do, and we're like an analysis paralysis. We're like, oh my God, there's so much like great information. But the context that we really need to view everything is, is it true for me? And that's what I really want to encourage women to do, is ask, is this true for me? Like so-and-so might say, we all need to go gluten-free and I would argue a lot of people do a lot better at gluten-free, at least is what I've seen clinically. But you can also ask, like, is this true for me? You know, dairy can be a trigger for acne. Is that true for you? Like, do you actually get acne uh, when you have dairy or is it something else? Because for some women, might be eggs, it might be sugar. And I think it also depends on the time in life. I didn't
0: have dairy until I got pregnant with my first child and then whoa (laughs) I was having a vat of
1: Greek yogurt a day. (laughs) That was me too and I think you know uh, it's something where I think restricting food if you don't have to. I don't like restricting food in pregnancy. I don't like restricting food in general actually Um, but pregnancy and postpartum especially and that you know people will say oh you're craving all of this dairy because you need the calcium. Well no there's not actually a lot of bioavailable calcium calcium and dairy there never has been Um, Chinese cabbage actually wins when it comes to a glass of milk but why why full fat Greek yogurt because I was eating like I was eating like a tub a day too because it has a lot of fat and fat is what we need to well one our hormones of course but also the nervous system tissue blood sugar I mean fat actually helps neutralize it's like more neutral with insulin whereas like you know carbs we can all understand spikes insulin so it's more neutral but to me you know that is more about fat soluble nutrients that you're trying to get and getting those healthy fats in. And grass fed, you know, cows, they're producing these fats that actually are great. They're full of antioxidants. They have so many benefits to them. So switching gears a bit, what advice would you give to a woman who's suffering from low libido? Mm, and that is so, so common with birth control. And then when you come off, it doesn't just come back. And that's because, uh, the and this is something, again, thank you, my patients, um, for helping me develop these protocols. Because what I'm going to tell you, even though the research says it can't be done, my patients have proved the research wrong. <laughs> so um, what the research has shown is that when you're on hormonal birth control, the alter the, it alters your liver at the genetic Level. So it expresses higher amounts of sex hormone binding globulin. This is a protein that grabs onto your testosterone. Now, on top of that, birth control is shutting down testosterone production by as much as 50%, plus messing with all your other hormones. And we need a lot more research on the female brain because there's probably something going on with oxytocin there um, For sure. as well. So But with just the testosterone piece, you got a protein that goes up. It grabs onto your testosterone. Your testosterone production is already low. This is the sneaky way that the pill really keeps you from getting pregnant: is you don't even want to have sex. (laughs) So your libido it comes down. Women also experience um, pain with intercourse, vaginal dryness, pain with orgasm, which is super lame because even if you do get in the mood and then you do have sex while you're on birth control, you might actually have painful orgasms. And now you're gonna have you're gonna have avoidance. And I bring that up because it's. complex maybe it's just the testosterone maybe you've had pain with intercourse like you like any organism is going to avoid anything that causes pain and so that's where like working with a pelvic floor physical therapist can be helpful making sure you're open and communicating with your partner you know possibly meeting with a counselor like because these issues when they start they might be physiological but then other layers might build on top of that so with the sex hormone binding globulin what the research said is when women come off of the pill It doesn't just come back down in fact they concluded that it never returns to the pre-pill state so and they compared this to women who had never used the pill what their levels were and then women who had ever been on the pill and found that the sex hormone binding globulin was higher so still grabbing onto that testosterone Now, the cool thing is, is that epigenetics uh, is always coming in for the win. And so, you know, by loving up the liver, as I take you through in the whole liver chapter, the protocols that I guide you on, I have a whole chapter on libido because this is so common and so under discussed in women's health. For sure. And I take you through a whole protocol on getting your libido back. And I I talk about the very same things. like You have to have open and honest communication with your partner. Um, We are still very much in a time where it's like, we don't talk about sex and we don't talk about periods we're but getting it's better like, yeah we it's definitely getting better but it's like you have to talk about those things and you have to also understand what works for you because um ladies understand everything that you've ever seen in hollywood is just a lie it's just a straight up lie and it takes like so our foreplay is actually uh it starts with like him doing the dishes um i'm assuming male partner here but you know whatever whatever is you you know for you is for you no judgies. so um but you know taking care of the kids those kinds of things that make us feel nurtured make us feel safe supported Mm -hmm. that's where like we're like okay because i mean Sex is pretty invasive for a woman. So you have sure. to be relaxed and you have to feel supported. And then it can take like 20 minutes of in the bedroom foreplay to actually get you excited and to get the body stimulated so that it secretes uh, lubrication. The uterus actually begins to move back. Um, so that's a really cool phenomenon. That's why you have to have foreplay so that your uterus can start to slide back just slightly so that it can accommodate, um, you know, male sexual organ. And then uh, with that, it can take another 20 minutes or more to achieve an orgasm. So you're talking like start to finish. It could be an hour in the bedroom. And that is okay. And that might be what works for your body. But there's this idea that like, you know, well, one, there's an idea where it's like having libido is a nice bonus as a woman because you just don't have libido. Women aren't into this. And, you know, I laugh about that because this is also the time where they thought, our clitoris was just this tiny little button that sat above our urethra. And now we understand it's this giant organ that like takes a deep dive into the vaginal canal. And like, it's pretty phenomenal what we're coming to understand about women's anatomy. And women, I want you to recognize that, that when your doctor's like, I'm going to dismiss this thing, or there's no research to support this, we just figured out how big the clitoris is. Hello. (laughs) Like, that's... Like we don't know as much as we think we do, <laughs> right? And
0: what about foods for libido? How can a woman eat to improve her libido? Oh
1: yeah, so I, I've actually written several articles on Mind Body Green about this, and I have information <laughs> I, in my book as well. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm
0: a little shocked by
1: the garlic. Yeah,
0: I knew about the oysters, but garlic was new information to me. <laughs>
1: yeah, garlic is one where, like, I, and I'm always like try to caveat like your partner has to eat it too, like make sure you both eating it. But yeah, so garlic, anything that's good for the cardiovascular system is good for your libido because. When we are getting in the mood, we are going to increase blood flow and circulation to the pelvic floor. Um, that's why hula hooping and belly dancing is also great for you um, and anything you can do to get into the pelvic floor because we all sit too much. You and I are sitting right now, so <laughs> but, but we sit a lot. Um, so garlic is one. You know, celery is something that can be beneficial. It has, celery, has precursors. not the typical aphrodisiac. No, yeah, <laughs> but it has precursors um, to testosterone as well. and it's You don't have to be afraid of it. Like you're not gonna like, and you know, just don't go crazy with celery. But you want to be eating whole celery. Um. So I just want to be really clear. You want to eat whole celery because you also want those. So fibers juice celery to... doesn't count. No, juice celery doesn't really count. Okay. Um, it's like the
0: filler in all juices.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, and I mean you can bring it in, and it will have some of those constituents. But I like women to be eating whole celery because then they're also getting the fiber to feed the microbiome. If the microbiome's happy, then inflammation comes down. Now everything goes more into reproductive uh, health and is like oh let's let's make sure we have a libido so yeah oysters is another one anything that contains zinc because that's going to help with those testosterone levels and what are top foods with zinc um, so oysters, really most meats is where you're going to find zinc. Um, you can find zinc in some lentils, but it's not always bioavailable just because of the phytic acid that's in there. Um, and so, but the top foods you're going to find is going to be meats um, with zinc. And then, um, and but you know I will say pumpkin seeds can be helpful. And so you can do that as part of seed cycling. And so pumpkin seeds you can de- eat during the follicular phase, which is first day of your period, leading up till ovulation, which is when your testosterone is going to rise to get you in the mood. And so eating two tablespoons of pumpkin seeds every day can be helpful with that as well. And then, of course, chocolate. Everybody loves it when I say dark chocolate. Because, again, it's good for the cardiovascular system. Um, And anything that's good for the cardiovascular system is going to help with the libido. And if you are a meat eater, getting some grass-fed red meat is going to have your zinc. It's also going to have arginine in it. And that's an amino acid that helps with that vasodilation. So the engorgement of your sexual organs, which you might be like, wait, what is that? That just means plumping up of the fun parts. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. And what advice would you give to your younger self? oh, uh, believe yourself, trust yourself, like – don't let anyone dismiss your story. I spent a lot of my 20s giving away my power to people. And I'd also say like, nobody has ever been served by judging themselves where they came from. So I gave away my power and then I replayed every single bad thing, bad uh, in quotation marks there, that I did in the day before I went to bed every day, judging myself harshly. And then I entered my 30s and was like, what a waste of energy. (laughs) And then I hear like, you get into your 40s and then you really don't care. Um, And I'm like, i can't wait (laughs) i'm trying to take notes for my friends in their 40s and being like i want to get there sooner of being like no this this is my boundary this is who i am
0: (laughs) well thanks so much for joining us today and for this fascinating conversation around the pill birth control women's health and sexuality
1: yeah well thank you so much for having me these were excellent questions and i cannot wait to see what people have to say and what questions they have awesome thank you thank you